Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 95 of uh, of the Upper Memory Block podcast. So uh, I know I promised you guys uh, a show on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, A Final Unity, and that show's still coming. It'll be out in a few weeks, uh, but uh, I decided, kind of made an executive decision to do a quick schedule change. Um, you know, as I explained a few weeks uh, or a few months ago or, or whatever, uh, my wife and I are, are having a baby and uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately we're having a baby, but unfortunately, uh, even in the preparation for uh, for the baby uh, arriving in, in hopefully less than a month, uh, if everything goes according to schedule, um, you know, things have gotten super, super busy and I just have not had time to, uh, to get the show out and, uh, you know, researched and YouTubed and, and all the things that I usually do for, uh, for an episode. So what I've decided to do instead, I, I mentioned this a while back, uh, I asked some folks for some, uh, some guest shows. So, you know, people doing UMB kind of in their own way, talking about a game that is maybe important to them that I haven't covered yet. And uh, first off, I got one from uh, from my good friend Akago, friend of the show. You guys have all heard him before. And, um, you know, it was meant to go up, you know, after the baby was born. But I realized that, you know, with things being as busy as they are, uh, I'm going to put it out before the baby comes. And, uh, you know, as things come in, I'm going to do, you know, my own episodes and maybe intersperse guest shows or maybe do a couple of guest shows in a row. So, uh, you know, just to keep the feed going and hopefully even more regularly than, um, you know, than, uh, than it has in the past. So, you know, kind of a little change up with my change of life situation, but... Um, you know, I think it should be should be pretty cool. So before we get to Akago, I'm going to do I'm doing my little spiel at the top here, and I'm going to do a little spiel at the end. But uh, I just wanted to uh, to slide in a quick email uh, before we get to to Akago's coverage of the Neverhood, because I talked about it on previous shows. But uh, like a dork, I I actually forgot one more Day of the Tentacle uh, email from Father Beast. He actually sent an email about Maniac Mansion, and then the second part of it was about Day of the Tentacle, and I was supposed to read uh, that second part in the in the dot show, and I didn't, so I'm going to read it right now, and if you guys want to uh, want to comment on it or, or keep emailing or whatever, uh, for I think for most of the guest shows, I'll probably do a little, much shorter probably, uh, intro and outro than I'm doing for this one. But uh, so, you know, we'll still be able to go through more general emails. And when I do the final unity show, I'll read. I got a bunch of emails on final unity, so I will read those. So uh, Father Beast writes now on today of the tentacle. When adventure gamers get together and discuss the best adventure games of all time, two games always come up in the top tier. One is Monkey Island 2, the Chuck's Revenge, and the other is Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle. I was, of course, familiar with the greatness of Monkey Island, so I was interested in how this game could possibly be as good. I actually have a box copy of the game, so I'm guessing that it must have been a thrift store find since I don't recall buying it. Having ScumVM means I don't have to worry about getting it to work, so I just pointed ScumVM to the folder and jumped in. Day of the Tentacle stars Bernard, who is described as being the win button in the original Maniac Mansion, along with two other people who were not in Maniac Mansion. In the course of the game... Uh, The other two get stuck in time, one 200 years in the past and the other 200 years in the future. You can switch between these people in different time eras in the process of solving puzzles. Uh, They're each exploring the same mansion in three different time periods, and the mansion isn't as big as in the first game, but they are plenty large. 
The puzzles aren't nearly as difficult as the first game, but they are twice as funny. Maybe three times as funny. Maybe more, because this game is freaking hilarious. As an example, uh, the guy in the present, that's Bernard, stuffs a hamster into an ice machine so the girl in the future can have it. The girl takes his frozen hamster out of the ice machine, and before putting it into the microwave to thaw it out, uh, she turns to the player and gives this PSA about not putting actual animals in a microwave. Uh, The thawed hamster is still cold, so the guy in the present finds this sweater in one of the rooms, but it is sopping wet. So he smashes a vending machine, and uh, and a mount- this mountain of quarters spills out. I guess no one ever emptied the thing. Uh, when you tell him to pick up the quarters, he decides to examine each one to see the year, and then he goes into the basement and puts the sweater in the dryer, and proceeds to feed every quarter, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth, into the dryer. In the future, uh, the girl comes into the laundry room, and the dryer dings, having finished its cycle. She then takes out the dry and ridiculously shrunk sweater, which fits the hamster. So maybe I've spoiled that puzzle for some. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, (laughs) But there are plenty more, and they are mostly riotously funny. In my opinion, this is the funniest adventure game I've played, with the possible exception of The Curse of Monkey Island. If you can't tell from my gushing, I'm saying that this game totally holds up, and everyone who likes adventure games should play it. Now, the remastered version of Day of the Tentacle has recently been released, And I'm probably going to buy it, but I'm in no hurry. I really wanted the remastered versions of the first two Monkey Island games, but that was mostly because I wanted voice acting. Uh, Dominic Armato is a national treasure. Uh, But I already have a voice acted version of Day of the Tentacle, and it looks great. I don't know how a modern version could improve things more than fractionally. Okay, so that's my opinion. Looking forward to the episode. Keep unblocking Father Beast. And uh, he actually writes, since he sent that a while ago, he writes, as a follow-up, I have since bought both Day of the Tentacle Remastered along with Grim Fandango Remastered from GOG on sale a while back, but I haven't found the time to play either one. Well, thank you, Father Beast. And, um, you know, I guess the only thing I'll say about the remastered editions, I think I've said this before. We've probably said it on the Hangouts where we talked about remasters. I probably mentioned it when I talked about Grim Fandango and even when I talked about Dot, though I can't remember. I feel like the remasters of these games make the game as we play it today look the way we thought it looked when we first played it. Because we had all these references of technology and, you know, these LucasArts adventures, they were all good-looking games. I think in a lot of ways even better looking from a graphical perspective than uh, than Sierra games. They they had they had, the sprites were bigger, uh, the animation was nicer, and you know Sierra kind of went for this very generally went for this very realistic uh, look. And I, I kind of like the uh, LucasArts more stylized uh, trend, I guess you could say. But uh, you know, you go back and play the original now, and it looks good, and your memories of it are good, but. It's just everything's just sharper and everything's better. And they added in some quality of life things. So it's, you know, yes, they're fractionally better. But I think if you're someone who maybe has never played it before or if, you know, you're showing it to your kids and they would look at kind of the jaggy graphics from the original, they might not be quite as impressed as you were, you know, back in the early 90s. So I think it's more for that. Like, you know, they're great. They look better. I played the remaster and I quite enjoyed it. I thought it looked wonderful. And it never struck me that, oh God, this looks so much better than the original. It just helped me not get taken out because I said, oh, these are the graphics from 1992 or 1993 or whenever the game came out. And uh, yeah, it just kind of helped bring me forward through time. All right, so that's that. So thank you, Father Beast. And uh, like I said, even with this kind of slightly modified situation, please feel free to continue emailing uh, 
even if you have uh, comments on uh, on the Neverhood that we're going to hear about in a second, uh, send them. I'll read them on the show on the next show, and uh, you know we can go from there. So that is that. Take it away, Akago. Can you guide Clayman through the surreal and wacky world of the Neverhood? Well, let's find out with the Neverhood this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello and welcome everybody to this new edition of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I am your host, Martin, also known as Amir Dakago, here to talk to you about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Now, before we begin, let's of course address the elephant in the room. You've probably noticed by now, hey, where's our usual host? Where's Joe? Well, I am in fact not Joe. I am Amir Dakago. You may have heard me once or twice before uh, when I've sent in voicemails to the show. And I'm a bit of a content creator in my own right. I do video reviews over on my YouTube channel. I regularly stream old and new games on my Twitch TV channel. And most recently, I've actually gotten into making games with the Adventure Game Studio and have released my first game, Postman's Quest, not Rain nor Sleet nor Armageddon, just a little while ago. But, you know, before we begin the actual show, I'd first like to take a little time to thank Joe for giving me this opportunity to replace him as he is currently on, quote-unquote, maternity leave, as he and his wife are currently celebrating the birth of their first child. So, congratulations to the happy couple, the happy family. And with that out of the way, let's begin with the overview. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for so, today we're going to be looking at my favorite game, without any doubt, of all time, The Neverhood, from 1996, which was created by The Neverhood, Inc., and published by DreamWorks Interactive and Microsoft. Now, The Neverhood is a first-person point-and-click adventure slash puzzle game, and as Joe is wont to do, let's run down the definition of what a point-and-click adventure game actually is. In a point-and-click adventure game, you take on the role of one or more protagonists in a story, and by exploring locations, collecting items, talking to other characters, and solving puzzles, you must find some way of bringing the story to some manner of satisfactory conclusion, as you are often given some sort of quest or other objective at the start of the game, and throughout the rest of the game, the story is developed through cutscenes which show the goings-on with the rest of the characters, and puzzles can range from simple item combination to logical conundrums to saying the right thing to the right person at the right time, and so on, and may often involve hunting down clues in various places. So, The Neverhood is a unique game in various aspects, the most obvious being that this is a game animated entirely in claymation. So, clay sets, clay figures, clay everything, all painstakingly animated one frame at a time in stop-motion animation, which is quite a feat for an animated movie and even more so for a uh, CD-ROM video game like this. So, from that alone, you can already tell that we're dealing with something special. But before I get too ahead of myself, I suppose we should first talk about the game's premise, which is rather unique in itself. Because the game pretty much throws you right into the action and leaves you to figure things out for yourself from there. Hey, Clayman! Say knock-knock. 
As you start the game, you get a brief intro sequence where you see blobs of clay being splattered all over the screen and being mixed around, and eventually they start to take shape into all sorts of strange creatures and people and machines and whatnot before the game's title is shown, and then the game itself finally begins. So, the very first scene we see is our protagonist, Clayman, spelled K-L-A-Y-M-E-N, asleep in the middle of a closed-off room. Now, he's just happily snoring away, oblivious to everything around him, but a single click on the screen, and he wakes up, slowly rises to his feet, and from there your adventure begins as you guide him around the world. Now, in terms of interface, the Neverhood is really, really simple. You have a mouse cursor, you click on stuff, and Clayman will walk over to it and see if he can do something with it or just examine it. Now, in this very first room, all there really is is a closed-off window with a button next to it. If you push the button, the window will open, you get to see a brief view of the outside. There's a door on the right, which you cannot open on your own. But there's also a switch on the left. Now, if you go over and pull the switch, a massive hammer suddenly slams into the door and bends it. But the door still isn't open as such, so you still can't really get out. So you slam the hammer against the door a few more times until it completely breaks and you can finally leave. In the next room, you find yourself up on sort of a balcony overlooking a larger room below where there are several rings hanging from ropes from the ceiling and what appears to be a Venus flytrap on legs just quietly sitting underneath the ledge below you. Well, there's only one thing to do from there, and that is, of course, to jump down straight into the maw of the Venus flytrap, who apparently doesn't much approve of Clayman's taste and quickly spits him back out again. Of course, there's another door here as well, which you can leave through, but getting it open is easier said than done. You would think, hey, there's a big button on this door, maybe if I press it, the door will open. Well, if you try that, you are unpleasantly surprised by a boxing glove to the face, Clayman gets slammed across the room and picks himself up again, eager to try something different. You'll also notice a tiny ladder in the lower left corner of the room. You can climb down here, and this is where you will find one of the most important rooms in the game, the mail room. From here you can receive letters through a mailbox, which are all sent to you by a certain Willy Trombone, and he will attempt to send you clues regarding whatever puzzle you're currently facing. So if you're stuck, it's often a good idea to consult this place and get a little guidance. If you keep opening up more and more letters, Willy will gradually devolve into saying just weird or random or wacky stuff. Like, hey Clayman, you read too much. Hey Clayman, you read way too much. Or if you throw this letter away, I will think less of you. But regarding the puzzle upstairs, Willy tells you that Clayman should feed his pet Venus flytrap ring food. Now, you remember the rings dangling from the ceiling in this room. Pulling on some of them doesn't really do anything immediately obvious. Some of them make noises, some of them don't appear to do anything. But one of them, if you pull on it, will open the door to the right. But Clayman needs to keep holding down the ring to hold the door open. But as soon as he moves, he lets the ring go, the door closes, and you're back to square one. So the obvious solution is to put the Venus flytrap underneath the appropriate ring, pull down on it, the Venus flytrap bites down on the ring, and the door remains open, allowing you to leave. So after this, I suppose you could consider it a tutorial section. The game finally opens up as you step outside and finally get your first good look at the world you find yourself in, called the Neverhood. Now, you're basically standing in the middle of a town square where several buildings are surrounding you, including the nursery you just stepped out of. There's a little house. There's a strange cave covered in swirly purple growths. And a tall, thin building with a large pair of doors marked with an H. 
Now in these sections the game switches to first person view. Pointing the mouse cursor around you'll see it changes shape depending on which direction you want to go in. You can put the cursor on the edges of the screen to turn, or put it on the top to move forward. Through this you basically move between preset nodes in the environments to move from location to location. But looking around the area, you may get something of an eerie feeling as you notice the sky is basically an inky black void. There's absolutely nothing there. There are seemingly no other living, intelligent people like yourself around. The whole place is completely barren, and all you can hear are strange noises in the distance from you don't even know what. But let's keep exploring around. So we enter the H building, and here we enter a large hall with a spinning fan and another locked door with a sliding puzzle next to it. Now a sliding puzzle like this is of course no big deal, and the door pretty quickly opens. And in the next room you find what is basically one of your major goals throughout the game. Now lying on the floor is what's called a clay disc, and clicking on it, Clayman will eagerly pick it up, and you discover you have an inventory in this game, more or less. Basically anytime you pick up an item, Clayman will press a little button on his chest, causing a little door in his chest to open, and he stores the item inside, after which he shuts the door again. And if you happen to ever need the item, Clayman will automatically pull it out and use it as appropriate. And in the same room is also a clay disc player, so put two and two together, you insert the clay disc into the clay disc player, and you get to see a short animation with Willy Trombone. The same Willy Trombone who also sends you the hints in the mail room. Um, hello! Me Willy! Me Willy Trombone! These discs tell a story. However, Willy's story that he's trying to tell gets cut off pretty quickly, as you notice there are 20 slots at the bottom of the clay disc player screen, one for each clay disc. So, it becomes pretty obvious you have to collect all 20 clay discs to see Willy Trombone's complete message and discover basically the backstory to the game. As Willy tells you basically what is the Neverhood, where did it come from, who are you, and what do you need to do. Now, collecting the clay discs obviously involves exploring around and solving puzzles, and one of the next clay discs is in fact not too far away in a place called the Hall of Records, which is in the very next room. Now, the Hall of Records is probably one of the more infamous parts of this game. Basically, what it entails is the Neverhood Bible, where the entire backstory of the game's universe and several important deities and whatnot are inscribed on the walls of the hall, which, if you so choose, you can uh, decide to read, although it is not necessary to beat the game or anything, but it provides some interesting and entertaining kind of uh, religious backstory and goes to explain certain things you find along the way. But the Hall of Records basically encompasses over 30 screens of text on the walls and you have to cross it all the way to the end in order to find a single clay disc there. And then you have to walk all the way back again. So prepare for several minutes on end hearing Clayman's stomping footsteps echoing through the hall. But, once you pretty much know your objective, you're free to explore the rest of the Neverhood as you see fit. Now, in the rest of the town square, there's the house I mentioned, which is locked off with a musical lock, which plays a little melody which you need to match by spitting water into several pipes to adjust the pitch. 
There's a room with a dummy where you need to replace all of its dud parts with TNT to cross another obstacle a little bit ahead in the form of a hungry monster known as the Weasel. And in the cave you find a locked door with three buttons, which correspond to three other buttons that you find strewn across the area. So in order to open it, you need to find the other three buttons first to unlock it. And from there you find more and more strange locations and other obstacles as you come closer and closer to collecting all the clay discs and learning your final objective. Now some of the puzzles might not immediately make perfect sense when you first find them, but looking around you may often notice certain things out of place or things that correspond to certain puzzles you may have found that turn out to be clues. So it's important to pay attention to these things and take notes where necessary, while other puzzles rely on you to serve another puzzle before that in order to solve that one. Like for instance you find a game of concentration in one room, where you have to match up all of the different symbols to reveal the whole picture, and another puzzle then requires you to enter the solution to the concentration puzzle on a panel in order to solve that one. Now throughout all of this, the game has a very strange, cartoony, slapsticky sense of humor. I already mentioned the shenanigans with the Venus flytrap and the boxing glove, but there's also things like an apple tree where Clayman can chow down on a piece of fruit, which will cause him to let out a belch, and the more fruit you eat, the longer his belches get to the point where the third time you eat one, his belch lasts for a good two minutes, which is probably one of the funniest things in the whole game. Trying to descend a flight of stairs will cause Clayman to slip and fall, and there's the weasel I mentioned earlier, which results in a very funny and creative chase scene once you first encounter him. But as for Clayman himself, he's a very interesting character in his own right, because he never speaks. From the very moment you start up the game, he trudges along silently, looking with interest at everything around him, as he curiously puts his finger to his chin looking at things, which gives him a very naive and innocent feel to him. But he's nevertheless very expressive in his motions and his actions, and if you leave him alone, he even has a few very funny idle animations, like he'll adjust the buttons on his chest, which will cause his arms to slide left and right out of his chest. He will pull his head off of his body and put it in his hand to have an unintelligible conversation with his other hand, and so on. Now, as I mentioned already, there aren't really any other characters for you to interact with, which is one of the driving points behind the story. Where is everybody? Why are you the only one there? Though I can already say you will eventually meet up with Willy Trombone and a couple of other strange figures who may or may not have something useful to say to you, but that's all for you to discover, of course, when you actually play the game. Though regardless, you never really have to worry about doing anything wrong because there is no way to die in the game except in one specific specific place, which even the manual goes out of its way to warn you about, but I'll leave it up to you to discover that for yourself. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Now, coming out in 1996, The Neverhood has average hardware requirements for its time. It requires a Pentium 75MHz with 8MB of RAM, 16MB were recommended, a 4-speed CD-ROM drive, SVGA display, an 8- or 16-bit sound card, 10MB of hard drive space, and will either run on Windows 95 or Windows NT. Now, The Neverhood runs in a 640x480 resolution, and was actually one of the first games designed to run under DirectX, as it came with a DirectX 3.0 installer, and was presumably the reason for the Microsoft co-publishing deal. 
Now what DirectX is, is basically a piece of software that makes the game compatible with a wide range of video and audio hardware and input devices that are all DirectX compliant since before DirectX came out. You know, all the different hardware developers put out their own drivers, their own standards, and it could lead to hardware conflicts or unexpected complications when a piece of software did not support that particular piece of hardware. Thus, the DirectX standard was created to ensure that no matter what system you ran it on, it would support your hardware, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Another big part of the Neverhood is its music. Composed by rock folk musician Terry Scott Taylor, who I personally was not familiar with before I ever played the game, but he's apparently well known for his work in the bands Daniel Amos, The Swirling Eddies, and Lost Dogs. Now, the Neverhood soundtrack has been described as being very earthy and grotesque, to fit with the overall clay motif, and to deliver a deliberate contrast to the more modern techno styles that were prevalent in games at the time. As such, the Neverhood soundtrack consists of very jazzy, bluesy, Dixieland kind of music, a lot of emphasis on guitars and saxophones, and very bizarre vocals and lyrics and scatting on top of that. It really gives the Neverhood an identity of its own, which to this day, to me, has never been matched by any other game out there. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So, dev story time. The Neverhood is the brainchild of one Doug Tenaple, whom you probably best know for his work on the Earthworm Jim games. But aside from that, Doug has also worked as an animator, a writer, a cartoonist, and comic book artist. Now, Doug was born in 1966 in Norwalk, California, and he already got into animation at a young age, as he loved cartoons growing up, and even went so far as to make his own flipbooks at seven years old. Now, from 1984 to 1988, Doug attended Point Loma Nazarene University, which is a Christian liberal arts college in San Diego, California, and finished with a bachelor's degree. That same year that he graduated, he also did an art show entitled A Beautiful Day in the Neverhood, which would later form the basis for the Neverhood game, and as it consisted of 17 paintings depicting a clay city. Doug's first real job after that was at SeaWorld San Diego as a mural artist, and he designed costumes and props, among other things. But this didn't last too long, and he moved on to freelancing, but didn't earn too much money doing that. But in 1990, the American Film Technologies Animation Studio needed 150 animators for their upcoming Attack of the Killer Tomatoes cartoon series. So Doug applied, and much to his surprise, he was actually named lead animator on the project. Though he still worked for minimum wage, but he still credits the experience of being a massive boost to his animation skills and changing his overall style. From there, he moved on to doing freelance work for several video game developers, including Realtime and Associates and Park Place Productions, who made the Batman Returns game for PC, as well as Blue Sky, who made one of the various Jurassic Park games. And it's on this particular project that the team actually got to work with an actual raptor puppet from the Jurassic Park movie, which may have been Doug's first foray into stop-motion animation. Now, in 1994, Doug would join joined Shiny Entertainment under veteran game designer Dave Perry to create the work which would put him on map for life, Earthworm Jim, a 2D platformer starring an ordinary earthworm turned into a superhero when a super suit falls out of space right on top of him, and he goes on to fight supervillains like Psycro, Professor Monkey for a head, and Queen Slug for a butt, all in order to rescue the lovely princess What's-Her-Name. The games were successful and praised for their ludicrous sense of humor, courtesy of Doug. But Doug himself was apparently dissatisfied with how Dave handled the reins at Shiny, and so he decided to leave, taking several co-workers with him to found his own company, 
The Neverhood Inc. Now, Duggett handpicked his own staff based on their skill, and apparently during its lifetime, there was a very relaxed and an informal atmosphere at the Neverhood Inc. The decor was very colorful, and all of the different staff members had certain titles assigned to them, like Denaple himself was the mayor, and animator Mike Dietz was designated Ditch Digger. Now, shortly after the company's inception, legendary film director Steven Spielberg would found DreamWorks Interactive, an offshoot of his own new film studio, DreamWorks. SKG, and they were looking for fresh and unusual projects to publish. So, Doug Naple approached Spielberg himself with the idea of doing a claymation game based on his earlier art show, and Spielberg was all too happy to accept. So DreamWorks and later Microsoft entered into a publishing deal and work on the game began. Now, for a lot of the Neverhood Inc.'s employees, this was their first PC game project. None of them really had any experience in puzzle design or doing stop-motion animation, but that wasn't going to stop them in trying to make something wholly unique. So after an initial design phase, work began on crafting all the various characters and environments for the game. Characters themselves were made out of latex on brass armatures, shot frame by frame on green screen sets to be inserted later into the game. Well, the sets were initially built out of wood and then later covered in clay that was melted down and applied through paint brushes and such, with details later added on as necessary. Now in all of this work, the crew ended up using no less than three tons of clay overall. And in addition, several sets had to be built multiple times. Now for interiors, a small version of the set was built so that Clayman, any other characters or objects could be later inserted in post. While for the outdoor scenes, large versions of the sets were built and a camera was put on a track to film the transitions from one location to the next, shown from Clayman's point of view in the first person scenes. Now in doing all of this, the animator shot a total of around 50,000 frames of animation, which was then all compiled into the game itself, either through sprite-based animations or in cutscenes stored in the familiar Smacker format. So, 1996, The Neverhood finally released, and it's received rave reviews from most review outlets at the time. Critics praised it for its unusual look and feel, the claymation and the music and all that, its sense of humor, puzzle design, and computer gaming world in its May 1997 issue would even offer it a special award for artistic achievement, while Animation Magazine's Film Festival, World Animation Celebration, awarded the game Best Animation Produced for Game Platforms in 1997. Unfortunately, despite all of this praise, the game didn't sell exceptionally well. Over its lifetime, The Neverhood sold a mere 42,000 copies, although an additional 600,000 OEM copies were made available on gateway computers, which inadvertently led to the game gaining a huge fan base in Russia and Iran as a result of the massive bootleg copying and distribution of pre-installed games on PCs there. Now, despite the game's lackluster sales, it would grow out to be a massive cult success, with many fans creating their own sites or fan art dedicated to the game, some of which are still active to this day. Now, in 1998, however, a sequel to The Neverhood was eventually released, once again created by The Neverhood Inc. and published by DreamWorks Interactive, entitled Skull Monkeys. Skull Monkeys was an unusual move in various aspects. Namely, it was a PlayStation 1 exclusive, and instead of being an adventure game, it was a 2D side-scrolling platformer game. Following up on the events of the Neverhood, the players once again assumed control of Clayman, as he this time traveled to the distant planet Idznak to fight against the evil skull monkeys who were plotting to destroy the Neverhood. 
Now, despite the obvious change in direction compared to the original, Skull Monkey still retained a lot of the original's look and feel through claymation animated characters and cutscenes, and another original soundtrack by Terry Scott Taylor. And like its predecessor, Skull Monkeys was praised for its visuals and sound and unique atmosphere, but criticized for being overly difficult, and obviously Neverhood fans disliked the shift from adventure game to platformer. Now, that same year in 1998, the Neverhood would also be re-released for the PlayStation 1 in Japan only, only ported by a company called River Hill Soft under the title Clayman Clayman Neverhood No Nazo or Mystery of the Neverhood, along with its sequel under the title Clayman Clayman 2 Skull Monkey no Gyakushu, the Skull Monkey's Counterattack, which were apparently successful enough to inspire a Japan exclusive installment in the series called Clayman Gun Hockey. Now, as the title implies, it's a relatively simple air hockey game featuring the Neverhood characters, but uses polygonal graphics as opposed to the claymation that made the other games famous and is thus not very well regarded by Neverhood fans. 1999 would finally see the Neverhood Inc.'s final game, Boombots, also for the PlayStation 1, which was a third-person action fighting game featuring giant robots fighting aliens, which didn't have any direct connections to the other Neverhood games aside from Clayman and the Neverhood stage being hidden unlockables. As such, the game didn't receive very much attention, and the lacking sales would eventually lead to the closure of the Neverhood Inc. entirely. 2013, however, saw a surprise reunion of Duck to Naples, Terry Scott Taylor, and several of the Neverhood crew as they put together their new company, Pencil Test Studios, and launched a Kickstarter for a new Neverhood successor called Armacrog, using a visual style similar to the Neverhood, but with completely original characters and story. This time putting you in the shoes of a rookie astronaut named Tommy Knot, who together with his blind dog-like sidekick Beak Beak, crash lands on a mysterious planet and has to explore a long-abandoned mysterious fortress named Armacrog in the hopes of finding a way back home and saving his homeworld. The Kickstarter campaign was successful and the game launched in 2015 to mediocre reviews. The game was praised for its visual aspects, bringing the Neverhood's look and feel into HD, but criticized for its lacking puzzle design and being released in a very buggy state upon launch. You are listening to the so, where can we get The Neverhood today? Well, that is unfortunately a bit of a difficult question to answer, because the game never got any kind of digital re-release on either Steam, GOG, or anywhere else. And given the game's relative rarity, it can be rather hard to track down on eBay for a reasonable price, as box copies can easily go for $100 to $200 or sometimes even more. And it seems unlikely that the game will be released anytime soon, as the game's rights held by DreamWorks and Microsoft Microsoft alone make it difficult to ascertain who holds the rights nowadays since DreamWorks Interactive itself doesn't exist anymore has since been acquired by EA. So your best bet to obtain it nowadays is probably through some unsavory methods that I should not name on here, but you'll probably know what I mean. Fortunately, should you be able to obtain a copy one way or another, the game is fully supported by ScumVM and will thus run on any modern system without any problems whatsoever and even includes an option to skip the pesky Hall of Records entirely. Hi, I'm the Space Quest Historian, and I want you to listen to the Upper Memory Block podcast because I say so. So, 
Final verdict, does the Neverhood hold up today? Hell yes, it does. Now, I mentioned already at the beginning of the show that the Neverhood is my favorite game of all time, and let me clarify that. When I first played the Neverhood way back in 1996, 1997, whichever, I had never seen a game like this before. Not just the claymation visuals, but just the sheer, surreal, wacky beauty of it all completely changed my perception of what video games could be. And to this day, 20 years hence, nothing has ever come close to matching that in my mind. The game looks beautiful, has an absolutely unmatched atmosphere of wackiness and mystery, compounded by the fantastic soundtrack, and it's also a very enjoyably cerebral challenge with all of its puzzles and exploration, and gradually seeing the story unfold makes this a game that appeals to me like none other I have ever seen. And to see that this game has been forgotten and abandoned above all others over the years makes me sad. So if you yourself have not yet had the chance to experience this one-of-a-kind game, and if you enjoy similar games like Myst or The Seventh Guest, then by all means, give it your due consideration. Find some way to get it and play it today, because it is just that good. So, that about wraps up the show for this time. I'm very glad you were all here to listen, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Joe for giving me this opportunity. And as is customary, I will thank Rick Moyer from MoyerMultimedia.com for his great audio work. You can find the show notes on UMBCast.com. You can become Joe's boss over at Patreon.com slash UMBCast. Send him a little contribution for every show he puts out. And you can go to his YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash UMBCast for his research sessions of whatever games he is planning to cover in the future. You can follow him on Twitter at UMBCast show and joe personally at billybob476 follow the show on itunes on stitcher radio leave a good review if you like as for myself i can be found on twitter at amiyurakago on tumblr amiyurakago.tumblr.com that's a-m-a-y-i-r-o-t-a-k-a-g-o i'm sure you'll be able to find a link in the show notes as well if joe would be so kind i stream on twitch.tv slash underscore akago i also have my own patreon in case you want to leave me a contribution as well on patreon.com slash you can find my reviews and other videos that i've made over on youtube.com slash so that about should cover it i'd like to thank you all once again for listening and i hope you'll join us all again next time on whatever game joe or whoever else will cover next time here in the upper memory block
All right. Hey, I'm back uh, just for a little closeout. So that was an amazing, amazing show. Thank you so much, Akago. That came out better than I thought it would. <laughs> hey, if the rest of them were like that, maybe I can retire and just do uh, just do guest shows on the feed from now on. Anyways, that's not the, it's not going to be the case. Don't worry, everyone. So um, because I kind of changed gears at the last minute on this one, uh, I decided that, you know, I, I would put out some a, a little quick kind of feeler to see if anyone had any thoughts you know, just kind of uh, with twenty-four less than twenty-four hours of warning, and uh, I did end up getting a voicemail about the Neverhood from uh, from our good friend Tomer. So let's listen to what he has to say. Beautiful, completely unique, and with the best music ever. The Neverhood is an awesome, awesome, awesome game. Really, the only bad thing about it is that stupid ass hallway where you have to walk by like thirty-five or so rooms just to get to the other end, pick up the disc, and get back. But, you know, I can live with that. So other than that, The Neverhood really, really is a fantastic game. Get it, play it, enjoy it. Bye. Well, thank you so much, Tomer. It was a nice, nice little comment. And actually, that leads me in very nicely to uh, what we are going to be doing next time on the show. So uh, Tomer mentioned that the game has amazing music. And uh, on October 8th, as it stands right now, uh, if, if you know the world doesn't end, we are going to have our sixth, yeah, our sixth Patreon hangout uh, with a lot of my friends. And um, we are going to talk about game sound and music. So that's kind of game hardware, games, you know, music and games, composing, uh, you know, everything like that, the different generations. Hey, you know, maybe we really like some PC speaker music. Maybe we like some MIDI stuff. Maybe we want to move on and talk about some uh, some Redbook-style digital audio. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that's going to be a lot of fun. We always have a blast at these Hangouts. And then after the Hangout, uh, within that intervening time, I'm still going to try and get that. Um, I'm not going to try and get it out. I'm going to get out the uh, the final Unity show so we can read all your emails and all that. So thank you very, very much to Akago. And thanks to everyone for, for bearing with me in this... Uh, very interesting and kind of unknown for me time. And uh, yeah, so we'll look forward to uh, to the Hangout next time and a um, bunch of other cool stuff coming from a lot of you. And if you actually do are interested, if you have, you know, a microphone and, and some interest in doing your own sort of UMB-ish style, uh, style episode that I can throw on the, on the feed when, uh, you know, over the next couple of months, uh, I'd appreciate it. That'd be really, really cool. So if you are interested in that, you have an idea about maybe a game or a technology or some aspect of uh, DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming that you think you can uh, you can talk about, then uh, drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com or you know, grab me on Facebook or Twitter or all of that. And, uh, and we can slot you in because I think um, this might be a cool way to go for a little while. So that's that. Thanks a lot. And we will see you next time here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.